Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 41. Last time we investigated the week which immediately followed the full-scale intervention of the People's Republic of China into the Korean War. While not actually declaring war, Mao Zedong did send hundreds of thousands of his volunteers into the weak spots of General MacArthur's divided forces, splitting and hemorrhaging them further as a retreat to the south began. It was to be a bitter and bitterly cold experience for the men of the UN Armed Forces for the next few months, as retreat and withdrawal were the only options seen on their menu for some time. 
In the midst of this crisis in security and strategy was General MacArthur, the man who had announced only the week before the Chinese intervention that the boys would be home before Christmas. Now in Washington and in the capitals of America's allies, people were wondering how and why MacArthur had managed to get it all so wrong. As MacArthur's failure became all the more glaring though, the spotlight was shone not on Washington's lacklustre supply of intelligence, but largely on the failure of MacArthur and his staff to see the assault coming. This narrative had been steadily added to and buoyed by the talk of MacArthur's character, his refusal to listen to counsel, especially from politicians, and by the grizzled general's inbuilt sense of his own importance following in Chon. It was easy to believe MacArthur was to blame, in other words, because the general had the reputation of, well, being a bit of an ass. Truman took full advantage of the perceptions surrounding MacArthur's character and his role in facilitating the Chinese intervention, and in the process the president engaged in an admittedly ingenious PR campaign, which not only shifted the blame from president to general, but also began to urge the formation of a response to this troubling state of affairs. MacArthur's very personality, as this episode will show, made crafting this picture that much easier for Truman. Now that MacArthur had landed him in this hot mess and the Chinese were taking part in the name of communism, it was only right that America and her allies prepare for the worst, and prepare to defend their interests and their allies by engaging in a massive rearmament program aimed at making, in Washington, an arsenal for democracy in the world. This, as we learned last time, was something of a three-step process. First, MacArthur had helped spring the trap. Second, he would have to be held publicly accountable as the situation deteriorated. And third, those proposed increases could be implemented once the initial shock at the errors in command had been overcome. It was the second step, that of dismissing MacArthur, which Truman needed to implement next, because this would give the appearance of closing the door on the whole affair. As it happened, it was a step made easier for Truman by MacArthur's own personality. The general reacted badly to his own misfortune and sought to escalate tension and calls for solutions, which neither the Truman administration nor their thoroughly spooked allies felt able to accept. In the end, only the act of bidding MacArthur farewell would do. Let's see how this process continued to develop then as I take you all to December 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by Zach Twomley going to Harvard. That's right. If you happen to be in the New England area, if you happen to be in Boston, or if you happen to be in Harvard more particularly on the 2nd to 3rd of November, make sure to stop by because I will be giving a talk. I will be giving a talk on the Treaty of Versailles. And if you're interested, you should definitely stop by and have a listen, because you'll be able to meet me, and I might even shake your hand, you might even buy me a pint, we might even reminisce on all the crazy different things I have covered in this podcast, and the even more crazy things I still have to come. We could laugh about how you can always somehow hear birds in the background of these episodes, and how sometimes I release too much content for any sane person to properly digest. Otherwise, if you guys would like to come, make sure to click on the link in the description below and find out how you can get tickets for this great event. I'm not the only one going, by the way. If I was, then that would be a kind of boring thing to do. As a matter of fact, everyone from Dan Carlin to Mr. History of English Kevin Stroud is going, so 
you be wise to show up. I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, and the Agora Podcast Network will be represented very darn well. So, well, in fact, it is my hope we will get some kind of group podcast going from it. So, I'll be on the lookout for that as well, and I'll let you guys know all about it when the time comes. In any case, I hope you guys are enjoying this massive glut of Korean War content. You may or may not know that the Treaty of Versailles project is coming out in November, so... October is a bit of a busy month for us here at When Diplomacy Fails Towers. If I don't get these Korean War episodes released, then, well, there'll be a very, very messy period in this podcast. So rather than be sensible and plan things properly several months ago, I thought I'd just drop it all on you now. So that's why you're getting three Korean War episodes per week for two weeks. And then you're going to get two episodes a week when we get past this part of the month. I know it's a bit intense, but that's just the way things work sometimes, especially now with my new job that I have and everything else. It's going a bit crazy. There's a awful lot to do. I've got a lot on my plate, but I still have room for the Korean War. So thanks for stopping by, guys. And remember, if you'd like to support, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. You are always welcome to be listening to even more history, which I'm sure you need, because, hey, three episodes a week just isn't enough. In any case, the song of the week this week is one of my favourites. It's called Columbus Stockade Blues, released by Bert and Ruby Rains in 1940. You might not know this song, but it has been covered by Willie Nelson, of all people, and... I'm quite a fan of it myself. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back afterwards with episode 41 of the Korean War.
James Reston was a New York Times reporter with considerable pull and even more considerable friends. While he had not been privy to the words bandied about at the Congressional meeting on the 1st of December 1950, where Truman spoke with several individuals from both political parties, he had the next best thing, connections with people who had been there. After that meeting then, Reston wrote a stunning summary of what were believed to be the facts. His account, while on the longer side, provides us with first-hand evidence of the misconceptions and manipulations that the Truman administration had undertaken to portray MacArthur as the man responsible for the current situation. As we'll see, it was a convincing narrative. James Reston said, Outwardly, there is a new unity in Washington in the face of the crisis, but behind the scenes, there is one of gravity and considerable bitterness. There is no doubt that confidence in General Douglas MacArthur, even on Capitol Hill, has been badly shaken as a result of the events of the last few days. Similarly, there is no doubt that the US leadership in the Western world has been badly shaken by President Truman's acceptance of the bold MacArthur offensive and the President's rejection of the more cautious British strategy. Ever since the Inchon landing, which was praised worldwide as one of the most adroit military operations in the modern history, various suggestions have been made to the State Department and, through it, and the President, to General MacArthur, of the necessity for caution in approaching the Manchurian and Soviet frontiers. In each case, General MacArthur took the view that these suggestions were jeopardizing the victories he had won. Moreover, he indicated that he could not be responsible for the security of his troops a phrase he used on several occasions, if any such policy of cautious waiting were adopted. Reston thus painted a convincing picture, one of MacArthur's eagerness to close the victory and end the war, juxtaposed against the repeated warnings from London and elsewhere about the need to tread carefully near such sensitive borders. But MacArthur hadn't listened, and it had cost the Allies dearly. More damningly, Reston claimed, the President had clearly been led astray by his general, as had several others, and Reston gave the following reasons for this. General MacArthur was on the ground. It was assumed that his intelligence had been right about the numbers of Chinese that opposed him before the UN attack. It was also assumed that he had been right in his estimate about the Chinese communists not planning for a counter-offensive. From the time of the Inchon landing to the opening of last week's End the War offensive, General MacArthur was riding high. He was supported strongly on Capitol Hill and in the country, and any break with him certainly could not have done President Truman any good in the election. There it was. Not only was Truman led astray, but he was let off the hook with the explanation that, to have questioned the wisdom of the previously infallible MacArthur, before would have damaged his party's prospects in the Senate elections. Truman was given a get-out-of-jail-free card in a narrative where it was assumed that being duped by MacArthur, as so many others had been, was not as bad a sin for the President of the United States to be guilty of than that which MacArthur had helped to bring to life. Truman was guilty of naivety and negligence, perhaps, but as James Reston inferred here, his crimes were understandable and therefore forgivable and forgettable. MacArthur, on the other hand, represented the torrid new situation in Korea. He was that situation, and he was the figure whom Washington and the rest of the UN allies were eager to blame for what had happened. The truth, as we have by now learned, was far more complex. 
As ever, MacArthur did not help his case when it came to be his turn to speak. In an interview with the US News & World Report, MacArthur communicated by telecom his answers to a set of questions provided by that organ, and his replies also seemed to confirm the fact that MacArthur was nowhere near as informed as the common assumptions seemed to insist. To the question, were there any warnings from the United Nations or otherwise about the dangers of a winter offensive? MacArthur replied, there were no warnings, an answer which was perhaps predictable for one trying to save his own skin, but then MacArthur added, nor were any warnings necessary. A winter offensive is as hard on the enemy as upon friendly forces. To have assumed defensive positions awaiting spring would not have avoided the rigours of the winter climate, for to hold these positions would require constant fighting during the winter months, and it would have given the enemy an opportunity to mass his forces for a demolishing attack, with every assurance that he would jump off just as soon as a satisfactory military balance had been achieved. By claiming that the current state of affairs somehow spoiled the Chinese' actual plans, MacArthur was effectively absolving himself of any wrongdoing. Now, he seemed to reason, the United Nations were facing the Chinese head-on in a tough environment. But hadn't MacArthur said that the boys would be home before these winter conditions? That he had, so MacArthur was then asked exactly about what his intelligence had said about the strength of the Chinese. The general claimed that the Chinese had moved under the cover of darkness, and that air reconnaissance across the border is prohibited. When asked whether MacArthur had consulted with Washington, the general replied that major operations are all reported and approved prior to being launched. When asked about the winter offensive, which had been lauded by MacArthur as the final push, the general admitted that he had hoped the offensive was the decisive final blow, yet he also claimed once more that this current state of affairs was preferable because... Had we failed to assault and uncover enemy strengths and intentions, the opportunity secretly to build up from available resources of all China would inevitably encompass our destruction. It was a strange idea, for sure, that by pushing the Chinese now, he had forced them to get involved before they could prepare themselves even more. It also served again to paint a picture of MacArthur as a man who refused to accept responsibility for the crisis, Instead, to the general, the situation seemed somehow preferable to just leaving the Chinese alone. MacArthur didn't say so, but had he known of the Chinese numbers, there was no way that he, as a career soldier, would have countenanced such a suicidal advance into the teeth of the Chinese in the manner that he did in the last week of November. The key point, as several figures in Washington had begun to suppose, was that MacArthur, contrary to the picture which Truman was painting, did not know enough or really anything about the Manchurian border. He had walked into the buzzsaw without a clue and now fumbled to make some light of the situation. For sure, MacArthur should not have advanced without due knowledge of the region, and it was true that the general had, almost on a point of principle, massively underestimated the Chinese. Yet, as MacArthur's responses made clear, he had communicated his intentions and his position to Washington before advancing. This had been the subject of that meeting on the 21st of November, where Dean Acheson had wrested approval from those assembled for a probing advance towards the Yalu River. A probing advance had proved mere window dressing for careening headlong into the waiting Chinese, and while we have only circumstantial evidence of Washington's knowledge of the Chinese positions along the border, as well as of their numbers, it is inconceivable that MacArthur, by being on the ground, 
could have known more than the President of the United States, who was informed by the largest intelligence web in the world. One additional caveat we can take from MacArthur's telecom interview was the General's response to the sinister question about the atomic bomb. My comment will be inappropriate at this time, MacArthur said, likely mindful of Truman's previous faux pas when the President had been confronted and pursued by the press on that very issue on the 30th of November. Truman's mission following MacArthur's interview and its publication was to issue a gag order for all breaches of the executive when talking about US foreign policy. The President also continued to paint the picture of himself as an innocent bystander led astray by his belligerent general. In his memoirs, Truman wrote about the meeting at Wake Island on the 15th of October and recalled how MacArthur had assured him that, according to the intelligence, no Chinese attack was being prepared and that if they did intervene, they would have been slaughtered. But this was a lie, the line later attributed to MacArthur, wherein he seemed to claim bombastically that a Chinese intervention would be slaughtered by the Air Force, was, as we have seen, given by a summary of events in Omar Bradley's actual account. MacArthur's own perspective had been much more sensible and reserved, though still uninformed. By that time, on the 15th of October, Truman surely knew that Mao had cabled Kim Il-sung, telling the North Korean leader of his intention to intervene with the Chinese volunteers on his side, and thus he must have known to expect the Chinese intervention in the Korean War. As Richard C. Thornton noted, The President, in planting the notion that he would follow the recommendation of his field commander about a matter plainly outside the latter's realm of professional competence, was setting the stage for tarring MacArthur with blame in the case of failure. Indeed, when the Chinese communists did intervene, Truman would claim that MacArthur had misled him. The irony was that it was the other way round. Had MacArthur actually misled Truman, then the president, consider this now, the president would have been guilty of the most blundering and foolhardy foreign policy since, well, perhaps the history of any American president. Since Truman's claim and MacArthur's guilt are often taken for granted so readily, it is often forgotten what such claims really mean for both men. By blaming MacArthur, Truman inferred that he had followed a general whose intelligence had been faulty, but he also inferred that he, as president, did not have a comprehensive picture of events in a region which America's allies felt very sensitively and strongly about. As I've said before, the choice is a stark one. Either we believe that Truman was incompetent, easily led, and breathtakingly naive, or we believe that Truman was unwilling to trust the judgement of a man he did not like, and that he had long since engaged with the different intelligence departments operated by his administration, and some of which he had personally established. It's not a very flattering choice, since you're picking between a deceiving policy or a weakly pathetic one, but to me the choice is obvious. The President of the United States, contrary to his claims, would never have allowed himself to be so easily led, especially when he, and not MacArthur, sat on such a vast intelligence and interception network. Richard C. Thornton's thesis about Truman's role in the Korean War doesn't depend on the idea that Washington intercepted and decoded the mail pinged between Pyongyang, Moscow and Beijing. But considering the coincidental policies pursued by the Truman administration after such cables were sent between these relevant capitals, I would argue that it at least seems likely that Truman had access to the communist mailbag. In the midst of the he-said, he-said debate, the Allied line was crumbling in North Korea. 
A retreat hundreds of miles in length began in the depths of winter, harsher than any in living memory. Frostbite took a terrible toll on soldiers, just as weather froze men's firing mechanisms, rendered brittle their helmets, and paralysed their vehicles. This was a desperate low point in the Allied fortunes, before the line was reclaimed and stabilised in spring of 1951. The depression was then punctuated by the death of General Walton Walker following a car accident in the middle of December. MacArthur's intense frustration was compounded then by the refusal of Washington to countenance any airstrike on or across the Yalu. To MacArthur, this effectively crippled his ability to resist, since the sole advantage of his command had been taken away. It is clearly evident, MacArthur wrote on the 3rd of December, that unless ground reinforcements of the greatest magnitude are promptly supplied, this command will either be forced into successive withdrawals with diminished powers of resistance after each such move, or will be forced to take up beachhead bastions which, while ensuring a degree of prolonged resistance, would afford little hope of anything beyond defence. This small command, actually under present conditions, is facing the entire Chinese nation in an undeclared war, and unless some positive and immediate action is taken, hope for a success cannot be justified, and steady attrition leading to final destruction can reasonably be contemplated. It was a grim and stark picture for a man like MacArthur to send, but on the ground the prospects were no better. The weather was a sap to the morale and sanity of the already beleaguered soldiers, and the weather's overall effect on the morale, without even thinking of the enemy they had to fight, cannot be understated. As this audio clip makes clear, the weather was an enemy just as devastating as the Chinese. The big story from Korea was the weather. This morning's report indicated that heavy snowfall has started in the area and was considerable hindrance to uh, aerial operations. So it looks like the winter is getting well underway. Well, that was a Pentagon briefing officer. The bitter cold was the real enemy this week in Korea. Frontline correspondents brought distressing news that there had been a delay in the delivery of some heavy clothing to fighting men. Enough had been sent, said the Pentagon. All will soon be delivered, echoed Tokyo. Hey, Brit, you want something to eat? The question brought O'Brien out of his absent daydreaming as he trudged through the snow in the position which had been almost cut off by the Chinese. At a place called Hagaru-ri, a valley surrounded by vast hills. The geography of Korea, much like the foreign names, had long since been blotted out of O'Brien's brain. Starving and freezing, he and his peers in the 41st Commandos were some of the best quality fighting men that the Royal Marines had, but not even they were immune to the needs of the human body. What can I have? O'Brien asked his new American friend, who had recognised O'Brien by his distinctive commando beret. We got flapjacks, the American replied. O'Brien had never heard of flapjacks, but when he saw the soldier pile some 14 pancakes onto a piece of cardboard and add a generous drizzling of treacle on top, nom nom nom, he began to go weak at the knees. His stomach growled in anticipation and he felt his mouth moistening. Reaching out his hand, a hot coffee was also shoved into it. O'Brien guzzled its scalding contents down as fast as he could before setting into the pancakes. In the middle of everything, they were so organised, O'Brien recalled. A mortar could have blown them asunder, but they were all there, talking casually as if they were in Central Park. The Marines were fantastic fighters. There were youngsters there the same age as me. 
We just smiled, talked and moved on. This snapshot of life on the front lines in the depth of snow, fully reliant not on your government but on the merciful handouts of your allies, was representative of the experience of many a soldier in the Korean War. It is really unfortunate that for the sake of time and the narrative I'm going with, I don't have the space to tell more of these stories, or to properly shine some light on the very real trials and tribulations endured by the common soldier. The fact is that it was men like O'Brien and the American soldier who handed him his pancakes that were the true heroes of the war. Neither President Truman nor MacArthur in Tokyo could have schemed, advanced, withdrawn or held the line as they did without the resolve of the American, British, Canadian, Australian, Turkish, South Korean, soldiers, etc. all doing their bit. Since you know my style and my focus by now, you're surely aware of how we do things at When Diplomacy Fails, but this snapshot also provides us with a good metaphor for the Anglo-American relationship. Between London and Washington, though, it was not pancakes in the knee-deep snow, but political guarantees that each side was after. Clement Attlee's visit to Washington on the 4th of December 1950 may have been urged following Truman's atomic bomb slip, but it was pursued for other reasons. Attlee was keen to facilitate a settlement between the People's Republic of China and the United Nations, and he believed that peace in Korea would help all involved focus on the more important question of European defence. That was what Attlee and Truman talked of most during the former's visit, as the British attempted to impress upon the Americans the need to end this wretched conflict before it got even more out of hand, before the Chinese became a Soviet satellite, and before Mao was lost to Moscow for good. Attlee correctly perceived in Mao a desire to deal with the West on mutually beneficial terms, and he believed that, if given a good deal, the Chinese would be content to straddle a middle ground between Soviet and Western cooperation. Strategically, a Chinese relationship was vital to keep tabs on Moscow, especially since the alternative was a deepening of the agreements set out in the Sino-Soviet alliance of February 1950. As grand as that alliance had been declared to be, Attlee sensed that Anglo-American diplomacy could loosen its screws, but only if London and Washington cooperated and worked in tandem. This, Attlee was discovering, would prove difficult. Washington had a very different view on where its position in the Korean War lay. Kenneth Younger, a Minister of State in the British Foreign Office, noted on the perceptions of American foreign policy and of the wide-reaching ambitions, which the British believed, the Americans held for Taiwan. To him it was imperative that the United States make peace in Korea and signify their willingness to talk to the Chinese about Taiwan and permit the entry of Beijing into the United Nations. As Kenneth Younger concluded, If neither of these things is done, and the Americans still find both unacceptable, I do not see how the Communists can be expected to believe that the Korean operation is anything but a part of an American plan for preventing the fulfilment of the Chinese Revolution. If that is the true US intention, and I myself believe that at the moment it is, then I can see no peaceful way out of this Korean affair. Episodes 28 and 29 had looked at the Anglo-American relationship in more detail and actually brought our narrative up to the summer of 1951, so check back to those episodes if you need a refresher about what happened, but for now it suffices to underline the disagreements over the Chinese situation and highlight the concern which London felt about MacArthur. When Attlee went home on the 8th of December convinced that the Americans understood British reservations about the general, 
it would be some time before he was replaced. Truman, it seemed, did not feel it would be wise to fire MacArthur while the Allied forces were in the retreat. While the public perception of MacArthur was that he had been wrong and made a grave error, to remove him would surely have torn the heart out of the Allies, not to mention all of the administrative and strategic problems it would present. Better surely to wait until the front had stabilised before switching one's commander for another. The Battle of the Chosen Reservoir was fought over late November to mid-December 1950 and it represented the defeat of the UN forces in North Korea as they withdrew south after this Chinese Pyrrhic victory. The Chinese had pushed the UN forces out but they did prove also unable to cut off and surround the Allies who lived to fight another day by the end of the battle on the 13th of December. Although they had escaped, there was no victory to speak of. Seoul fell for the third time in the war on the 4th of January 1951, amidst the New Year offensive launched by the Communists on New Year's Eve. However, once again, as it had for Kim Il-sung, the fall of Seoul here represented the high point of Chinese offensive operations. Having pushed all the way down the peninsula from their Manchurian base, the People's Volunteer Army had mostly outpaced and overextended their supply lines by late January, and they proved unable to move in force outside of Seoul. While the Allied fortunes were grave, the panicked days of early December at least passed. Thankfully for the Allied cause, Matthew Ridgway was on the case. From the 16th of December he had commanded the 8th Army after replacing the late General Walker, and he sought to restore some much-needed morale into those men he commanded. It was an uphill battle just to replenish the men's faith in their unit, their capabilities and the cause, but Ridgway managed to do it. After several weeks of bitter defeat, heavy losses and demoralising retreat, the front seemed to stabilise. Now the time seemed right, with the Chinese and Korean allies held up in Seoul, for a counter-attack. Operation Killer was launched on the 21st of February, while Operation Ripper was instigated on the 7th of March. Both operations proved invaluable not merely for the ground gained, with Seoul recaptured for the fourth and final time on the 14th of March, but for the morale restored and allied capabilities. During several engagements, the Chinese human waves had been blunted by acts of extraordinary bravery and professionalism. One example is given by the fourth phase counter-offensive wherein 25,000 Chinese surrounded less than 6,000 American and French soldiers, with the latter doggedly standing their ground and holding the line, thus blunting the initial force of the Chinese advance. Have a listen to this clip of a soldier recalling the mass wave tactics used by the Chinese. Lieutenant, can you tell me how it looks up there now with this big Chinese offensive? Well, I tell you, I've never seen so many Chinese in all my life up there. You can just keep on shooting them down, they keep coming. We had the roads up there today just littered with dead. They just keep right on coming. Uh, I think they're doped or something. Hunched down, they got there. They just keep on coming. The Allies seemed to be getting used to the shock and awe which the mass wave tactics of the Chinese provided. They learned to anticipate and predict the enemy's attacks. As the artillery barrage was followed by the bugle, the whistles and the zealous shouts of hundreds and hundreds of men. It was a brutal, terrible time to be a soldier, for sure, and the tactics used by the Chinese seem almost impossible to believe, if not for the countless eyewitness accounts which testify to the suicidal bravery of the Chinese. Fortified positions ran out of ammunition as the enemy approached, 
and the usual concerns of fear didn't seem to impede the Chinese soldier at all. Once the shock passed, though, the facts became clearer. The Chinese were hurting, the war was proving exorbitantly expensive, and Joseph Stalin, to Mao Zedong's chagrin, was giving nothing for free. Mao knew that he couldn't keep up the pace forever, and his earlier threat to Stalin to withdraw now appeared impossible thanks to the precarious position of his soldiers. Any withdrawal would jeopardise the security of the Chinese line, as Stalin well knew it would. Once more then, Mao had to negotiate from a position of weakness, and pay for every bit of support that the Soviets provided. Even then, the paltry air support was not nearly enough to contest the sure Allied superiority, and the Chinese had long since learned to travel in dark silence at night, keenly aware that any detection would result in being blown to smithereens or being melted by the latest fearsome weapon in the Allied arsenal, napalm. On the eve of launching Operation Killer, named for its aim to destroy as much of the People's Volunteer Army as possible by taking advantage of their penchant for mass human waves, and by taking advantage of the Allied superiority in artillery and air power, General Ridgway received a visit from MacArthur. Having played a considerable role in restoring the spirit of the 8th Army, and picking up after MacArthur's mess, Ridgway was still pleased to have the Supreme Allied Commander's support in the region. In anticipation of the offensive which was soon to be launched against the Chinese, MacArthur talked with Ridgway and ensured that he was well informed of what was to come. Operation Killer had been Ridgway's brainchild, just as the restoration of Allied arms had been his life's work. On the 20th of February 1951, before several members of the press at the 10 Corps Tactical Command post though, it was MacArthur who stated calmly, for the benefit of the flashing bulbs and attentive reporters, I have just ordered a resumption of the offensive. MacArthur's cynical attempt to hijack Ridgway's operation understandably rubbed the latter the wrong way. Unlike MacArthur though, Ridgway was not so concerned about his own credit, as he was for the safety of his men. Up to this point there was no indication that any operation the size of which Ridgway had been planning was due to be launched. Certainly, now that MacArthur had announced the advance to essentially the world, he had thrown away what little surprise bonus Ridgway had enjoyed for the sake of some publicity and credit for a plan that MacArthur never developed or incepted himself. It was one of the most selfish, strategically stupid things that MacArthur did at this point, and Ridgway never really forgave him for it. Ridgway remembered that. It wasn't so much that my own vanity took an unexpected roughing up by this announcement, as that I was given a rather unwelcome reminder of a MacArthur I had long known but had almost forgotten. It had long been MacArthur's habit, wherever a major offensive was about to jump off, to visit those elements of his command that were involved and, figuratively, to fire the starting gun. In general, this is an admirable practice. The overall commander's personal presence has an inspiring effect on the troops, and invariably the best impressions of the temper of the men under his command are gained through the commander's own eyes and ears. The pattern of MacArthur's flight from Tokyo and appearance at the front line every time a major operation was to be initiated had been well established, and the flights themselves were made with such ceremony that knowledge of them was almost certain to reach the enemy. Ridgway's gears were even more intensely grinded when he heard MacArthur's account of Operation Killer. Douglas MacArthur now said, without any apparent hint of what really had happened, 
I now began to formulate long-range plans for destroying the Chinese forces in Korea. My decisive objective would be their supply lines. By constant but ubiquitous ground thrusts at widely scattered points with limited objectives, I would regain the sole lines for a base of future operations. I would then clear the enemy rear all across the top of North Korea by massive air attacks. If I was still not permitted to attack the massed enemy reinforcements across the Alu or destroy the bridges, I would sever Korea from Manchuria by laying a field of radioactive wastes, the byproducts of atomic manufacture all across the major lines of enemy supply. Then, reinforced by Chinese nationalist troops, if I was permitted to use them, and with American reinforcements on the way, I would simultaneously launch amphibious and airborne landings at the upper end of both coasts of North Korea and close a gigantic trap. The Chinese would soon starve or surrender. Without food or ammunition, they would become helpless. It would be something like Inchon, but on a much larger scale. From this, MacArthur's ambition for attacking the Chinese in late February 1951 seemed as ambitious as they were delusional. Time and again, MacArthur had been told that Taiwan would not be squeezed for troops, just as he had been formed and knew from experience that nuclear weapons could not be brought to bear either. Bombing across the Yalu was also impossible, as it would have been akin to the People's Republic of China bombing the coasts of the United States. Whether MacArthur fully grasped all of these facts or whether he was merely grandstanding for the sake of giving off a certain impression is not known. Certainly, MacArthur could not have known that within two months he would no longer be authorised to imagine such plans. As the tide turned against the Chinese with Ridgeway's plans, the British and Americans' other allies discovered that they liked something even less than MacArthur losing on a grand scale. That is, MacArthur winning on any scale at all. In the next episode, we'll resume our final analysis of the MacArthur saga by looking at the final moments of his career as the clock wound down on this old soldier's command. I hope you'll join me for that, but until then, history friends, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the Korean War, episode 41. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 